All right, thank you, men. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker on a car that says something like, a bad day fishing is better than a good day at the office? <laughs> something like that. I don't fish, but you've seen it, right? Something like that, a bad day hunting or golfing or whatever. Um, I always thought I should make a bumper sticker that says, a bad day as a Christian is better than the worst, than the greatest day as a lost person. And, uh, you know, honestly, the older I get, the more I believe that. And it maybe wouldn't make the best bumper sticker, but um, <laughs> I do think that's true. I said it to Ron Saborski the other day. I said, you know, brother, I said, don't you think even the greatest day you could conceive of as a lost person doesn't even hold a candle to even a, a bad day as a Christian? And it's true. Um, my wife and I, over the years, uh, the kids will say funny things, and we think we should write these things down, and then you never do. And I don't know, maybe some of you parents in the back have done better about that. You know, your kids say funny things, maybe write it down, but I don't know. You think over the years, all the, just the, the little things kids say, and then you forget them, forget to write them down. A um, couple ones that do come to my mind, at least. Um, I remember when, um, I think it was Charity, when Charity was younger, um, she didn't quite understand the song, He Plunged Me to Victory, so she would sing, He Punched Me to Victory. <laughs> it's just a little different idea, you know. Um, I'm not going to say who said this other one. It's one of my children. I don't want to embarrass him because he might be in the room. Um, when he was, I am sure, when he was younger, he would, he would walk around singing, Great is My Faithfulness. And No offense, because I'm not going to name him. But I don't know if that was quite true at the time, you know. Uh, probably my favorite one is uh, Zachariah, the year we did the, um, uh, which conference? He's still the same. The song, He's Still the Same. What conference was that? It doesn't matter. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Okay. A couple years ago. And so we sang the song, He's Still the Same. And uh, there's a one line in there, the prophet of God, uh, the prophet on Carmel had no friend at all. And Zechariah was probably three, and I remember him singing, the prophet of God had no caramel at all. (laughs) Which is probably true, I suppose. (laughs) All right, if you could find 1 Kings chapter 16, what I'd like to do is I'd like to do a brief overview of Elijah's life. And uh, actually, I don't want to particularly focus on any single event in his life. I want to consider an aspect of, of the man Elijah, especially as it would relate to our own walk with God, and primarily in hearing God speak to us. How many times did your parents need to say something to you in order for you to obey or in order for it to be authoritative? You think about this, this is still true for you, but how many times do your parents need to tell you something for it to be enough for you to obey it? What's the right answer? How many times do your parents need to tell you something for it to be authoritative and for you to obey it? One time, right? So just take one time, you know? Uh, Your parents say to you, you know, go do whatever, and it should take just one time. Of course, maybe the question that should be asked is how many times does it take for your parents to tell you something for you to obey. And uh, honestly, as a parent, that is one of the, one of the realities of child training is uh, teaching your children to obey right away. 
And uh, honestly, even though you might be adults and off in college, learning to obey right away is still an important part of, of being a child, uh, being under authority, learning to obey right away. Um, you know, it would be very bad parenting if when your children don't obey right away, for you to keep nagging them, that's bad parenting. If, you're, if your children don't obey you right away, you should just deal with it. And I'll be honest with you, that's not always that easy to do as a parent. But that, that's how it ought to be. If your children don't obey right away, you just ought to deal with it. Uh, really bad parenting is when you go from nagging to pressuring them with your voice. Maybe the better word is yelling. And uh, you, should never, you should never yell at your kids. And uh, I was actually out in my yard last night, and my neighbor on the other side of my fence was yelling at his child. And I don't think he's a, I have no reason to believe he's, he's a Christian. And uh, that's kind of what happens in the lost world. But it was sad as I'm listening. He's yelling at his child. And uh, that's not good parenting. Of course, no offense to my neighbor, but that's not good parenting. And uh, certainly as a follower, you should be ready to respond right away. And uh, parents ought not shout. They ought not shout. But I can tell you one thing today for sure and for certain. Do you know God never shouts. God never shouts. Of course, he doesn't need to. God never shouts. I've told my kids many times, and uh, frankly, these are things we talk about. This isn't like ancient history. These are things we talk about, especially with my younger ones. It's their responsibility to listen. As parents, we do what we need to do to communicate in a way that we're sure they can hear if they're listening. I tell them this. You know, we, we know where they are in the home. If we want them to do something, we, we know enough as parents to know how to, how to speak in a way that they should be able to hear us. But there are many times, unfortunately, especially with my younger boys, that they don't respond right away, and they say, I didn't hear you. And the reason they didn't hear us isn't because we failed to communicate in a way that they could. It's that they were doing something else or they were distracted and weren't listening. Do you understand how that dynamic works? And so I've taught my kids, we talk about this. We actually talk about it at family altar at times. Their responsibility is to listen. Our responsibility is to communicate in a way that they can hear if they're listening. But it never works for them to say, I didn't hear you. Because they could have had they been listening. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not perfect, but as a husband, I have endeavored to tune my ear to hear my wife's voice. So I can be in the garage doing something or whatever, I, I'm probably not as good at this as I think I am. My wife's probably back there going, really? Um, but I think, in general, that if my wife says something or, or asks something, I'm paying attention. You know, I hear it. And it will be at the table, and, and as a parent, you kind of, my wife's better at this than I am, you kind of learn how to, how to pick apart the different voices. And so if somebody across the table asks or something, you can. But if you're just so focused on your own thing, it's easy to miss somebody else's voice. Of course, the voice that matters is the voice of authority in your life, your parents, any other authority. And uh, I think we need to talk this morning a little bit about hearing the voice of God and how to respond when God speaks. So there you are in uh, 1 Kings chapter 16. And uh, here's a, a little bit of a transitional chapter. And uh, we're going from uh, one king to another king. Now we have Amri who becomes king, and then you have Amri's son, Ahab. And you come to the end of chapter 16, and uh, let's see here, verse 30. Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. 
came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which is enough as to say what the sin of Jeroboam was, was a big deal. But this is saying even beyond that, as if it was a light thing to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So this is a dark day in Israel's history. Now just remember with me, just a, literally a couple of generations earlier, you had Solomon on the throne of a unified kingdom. He erects the temple. Uh, God's presence comes down upon that temple in a profound way. And our purpose is not to remember all those details, but the day that that temple was dedicated and God came down in a cloud and his presence was so powerful, the priest couldn't even go in because God was there. And uh, that was literally just a couple generations before. You remember after the death of Solomon, who Solomon, though he knew all about the Lord, still made idolatrous decisions in his own life through his own lusts. His son Rehoboam inherits the throne and immediately there's conflict. And the conflict is really a result of Solomon's life. I think you know the story enough. It was Solomon's decisions that created the conflict Rehoboam inherited. But Rehoboam and Jeroboam have a, uh, a falling out. Jeroboam leads a revolt. I think you know the story. Ten tribes, northern tribes, essentially start their own nation, independent of Judah, and uh, for the rest of their existence. It's really uh, unfortunate that way. Uh, but Jeroboam then sets up his own worship system. And uh, if you remember the story, uh, you, of course, have Jerusalem where the temple is, and that's the, that was the very mountain that God ordained where he would meet with his people. But Jeroboam, the new king of the northern tribes, decides it's not good policy to have his people go back to Jerusalem because they do so. Maybe their hearts will go back to King Rehoboam. He'll lose their allegiance. So he sets up a, a counterfeit sort of worship system in Bethel, which is actually not that far from Jerusalem, and then way up north in Dan. And it was convenient. You know, hey, you can go here or there. You don't need to go all the way back up to Jerusalem. You can do this instead. And uh, again, that's not even the message. Uh, there's more that could be said about that and even how that parallels to a lot of contemporary Christianity today. But he sets up a counterfeit religion. But here's what I want you to get about it. What he did when he put that calf in Bethel, that calf in, in Dan, uh, the system he set up, I'm talking about Jeroboam, the system he set up was very similar to what happened in the temple. The rituals they did, the words they said, it was very similar. But it was way different in that it wasn't God's plan. It wasn't Levitical. It wasn't the Aaronic priesthood. It certainly wasn't the temple on Mount Moriah. But it was similar. I think, this is my opinion, but I think probably the garments of the priests that were set up there were similar. Probably the sacrifices were similar. But it was very different. These are to a likeness of God that was not like God. It was these golden calves, and it was, it was paganism blended with Jehovah worship. And in fact, don't turn there, but in chapter 12, there's a phrase said of Jeroboam's setting up of his religion. It said it was that which he devised of his own heart. And again, that's a very great expose of contemporary Christian worship. Things devised out of his own heart. So Jeroboam sets up this way of worshiping Yahweh, but it's his own way. It's not the right way. 
And so even though it's the right words, Yahweh's not there. Jehovah's not there. And it actually becomes this dead formalism. And uh, so the people in the northern tribes, they're, they're endeavoring to, to keep some connection to Yahweh, to Jehovah. It becomes very, very fake, very dead, uh, very lifeless. And in only two or three generations, you have Ahab come on the scenes. And uh, Ahab becomes king of the northern tribes of Israel. They were Jehovah's people. They knew it. But Jehovah to them was super distant. There was no feeling to Jehovah worship. He was dead to them because Jehovah wasn't living in Dan and Bethel. That wasn't real. Now, there were still Jehovah's people. They knew their history. But Yahweh meant nothing to them other than just history. And on that backdrop, you have Ahab, and he marries Jezebel, and they formally lead the nation into a pagan religion, the worship of Baal. And uh, what is Baal worship? Well, what is Baal worship? Baal worship is just legitimized sensuality. It's doing religious stuff that actually makes you feel good about doing sinful things. It's a way to legitimize sensuality. And it was everything like that. It was a rock concert. It was immorality. It was, it was all the bad drugs, all that stuff. It was all the bad worldly stuff, but it was legit because it was under Baal worship. And in a, in a very real sense, it was an attempt to fill the void. These people, you know, when and if they ever did go to Dan and Bethel, which I'm sure over time they just didn't go, there was nothing there. God wasn't there. It was dead. So they had a void in their lives, and Baal worship filled in that void. And um, what a tragedy. Well, it's really in the context of Baal worshiping taking hold on the nation that we have chapter 17 and the appearance of a man named Elijah. No background is given to him. He just appears. Look at verse 1, chapter 17. Elijah the Tishbite, the inhabitants of Gilead, sit unto Ahab, and he makes a proclamation. Ahab appears out of no. I'm sorry. Elijah appears out of nowhere. I want you to notice, first of all, in chapter 17, what I'd like to think of as the revelation of a word. The revelation of a word. And if you're to do a study of Elijah, which I like Elijah, he's one of my favorite Bible characters. I think there's a strong connection between, in Elijah, between the word of the Lord and the word of Elijah. There's a strong connection. Uh, Elijah, he's a rough man. He comes from the mountain country. He wasn't a polished preacher by any means. But one thing about Elijah, he had conviction. He had conviction because, I want you to catch this phrase, God spoke to him. Elijah had conviction because God spoke to him. We can assume a couple things about Elijah. Um, Elijah was a man just like we are. And I can say that because James said it. And you know the passage. James says that Elijah was a man um, subject to like passions as we are. That's in the New Testament. So when James is writing, he's going to use now Elijah as, a, as an illustration. He's saying it to all of us. He's not just writing to a uh, pastor. He's writing it to everybody. He's saying, Elijah is just like you and me are. Just like we are. He says he was a man subject to like passions as we are. He says, yet he prayed. Do you remember the next word? He prayed earnestly. And so Elijah's life, the example of Elijah's life, is not particularly his miraculous power, which he didn't have any miraculous power. It was his prayer life. Elijah was a man who prayed earnestly. And in his earnest prayer, God did remarkable things. And he's an example to us. 
So Elijah, of course, uh, appears on the scene here in chapter 17. We don't know a lot about his life before that, but I think we can assume one thing about Elijah. He was a man who prayed, and Elijah learned how to pray. And in fact, um, why don't you turn to just a couple passages really quickly. Uh, Leviticus 26. We're going to come right back to chapter 17. But look at Leviticus 26, and uh, the verse I'm looking for is uh, verses 1 through 4. Remember, the psalmist says, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my med- meditation all the day. And I, I was thinking about this this morning. I was out for a run, and I thought, that's Elijah. He loved the law of God. It was his meditation all the day. Look at Leviticus 26, uh, verse number 1. It says, Ye shall make you no idols, nor graven image, neither rear you up a standing image, neither shall ye... Set up any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it, for I am the Lord your God. Ye shall keep my Sabbaths, reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season. The land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Look at Deuteronomy 11. I'm not going to have you turn much. This is the only time here. Look at Deuteronomy 11. And uh, verse number 16 says, Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain and that the land yield not her fruit and ye shall perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. One more passage, Deuteronomy 28. Just a couple pages over. Verse 23, Deuteronomy 28, 23. And thy heaven <clears throat> that is <clears throat> over thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. And the Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust. From heaven shall it come down upon thee until thou be destroyed. I think we can assume at least one thing about Elijah, and the Bible doesn't expressly say this, but I think this is exactly right, is that Elijah loved the law of God, and he considered it to be truth. And I think there was a day in Elijah's life after Ahab becomes king, and Jezebel is uh, wielding her manipulative ways in the kingdom, and, and Baal worship is now formally practiced by his own countrymen. I think Elijah one day was looking out the window and he saw green grass and crops in the field and and thought, this doesn't make sense. God, you told us. God, you told us. If we left you, you would actually keep the rain back. You would send famine on our land. And God, why is everything working out okay? And I think, as, as strange as it might seem, Elijah prayed upon his own people the cursing of God. And it wasn't because he was haughty about it. He realized if that's what God said he would do, and it's not happening, then God, you said you would do this. Well, why did God say he would do that? To get the people's attention. Because he loved them. And so Elijah's not praying a curse upon his own nation, and frankly upon himself. He suffered from the famine just like everybody else did. Because he was mad at the people, or thought he, he was burdened about the people. So he began to pray the very promises of God. 
and uh, the very reality of what God said in his law. And I think when James says he prayed earnestly, that's what he's talking about. He prayed earnestly. And here's what I'm convinced about Elijah's life. There was a day when Elijah just praying the words of God back to God. <clears throat> when he prayed the words of God back to God, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And so Elijah's remembering, God, now you said this. God, you said this was going to happen. Why isn't it happening, God? I'm claiming your word in this thing. And then we have the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. Look at again at chapter 17. So Elijah uh, comes before Ahab and says, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, <clears throat> there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. It says, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, and you'll see in chapter 17 especially, it's developed the most in 17. There becomes a very strong connection between the word of Elijah and the word of the Lord. Because there was a day that Elijah, standing on the word of God, got a word from God. And I think chapter 17 is the revelation of a word. Here Elijah shows in his life that he went from just what does the book say to what is God saying to me based on this book. Look at 17. There's a couple of verses. Uh, verse 2, the word of the Lord came at him saying, look at verse number eight, uh, 5. It says, so he went and did according unto the word of the Lord. He went to Cherith. Uh, verse 8, and the word of the Lord came unto him saying, verse number 14, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel, he's speaking to the widow, uh, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, and he mentions the miracle that would happen. Verse 15, and she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. Look at verse number 16. The barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, and according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. And, of course, Elijah was a prophet in that Old Testament sense. God be, was using him to lead the nation uh, based on his prophetic gifting. But it's interesting, the wedding of the word of Elijah and the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah. And I'm, I'm sure the day that Elijah stepped into the courtroom of Ahab, was because God took his earnest pleading based on the words of God and said, Okay, Elijah, let me give you a word to speak in this situation. And Elijah received from God a word. And I want to challenge us here today that that is an example for us in our lives. That God wants to specifically give us a task and a calling and an agenda, a word for our lives. But we have to listen and obey it. The second half of chapter 17 has a really profound story. This widow woman who uh, was used of the Lord uh, to meet the needs of Elijah. Miraculously, of course, God's doing it, not, she, not her. Uh, she loses her son. I think you're familiar with the story. Loses her son, and, and uh, she becomes just overwhelmed with grief, and, and just the reality of what's happening feels like even God's done her wrong, or God's bringing before him all of her wrong, and she's being judged. And so Elijah takes the child, breathes life back into the child. It's, of course, miraculous. Brings the child back to life. In verse 24, I think, is one of the most interesting verses in the whole story. Uh, the, the child is brought back uh, to life. He, he gives the child back to the woman. Verse 24, the woman said unto Elijah, Now by this, the miraculous raising of her son. And she'd already seen miracles. She'd seen the, the, uh, the, the, the meal uh, continuing. It says, Now by this, I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. 
And if there was ever a day that that dynamic needs to be seen, it's today. It is today. You know, BCM student, wouldn't that be glory if those you are interacting with could say, now I know that the word of the Lord is true, uh, that, the, that thou art a man of God and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth because God's doing powerful things in your life. And God does do miracles and he wants to do miracles in your life at your hand. And so we have the revelation of a word, and that is Elijah began to hear the word of God, and he knew how to live according to the word of God based on the word of God. He had a word from God and began to operate based on that word. But I want you to notice in chapter 18 this then, and that would be a response of God to a word. The response of God to a word. And I'm making a distinction between the word and a word and how God responds to a word given. Of course, you know chapter 18. This is Mount Carmel. Uh, this is, uh, I think, it's one of the greatest miracles in, in the whole Bible. I, this is great. It's a great story. And, um, of course, we talk about it, we sing about it, and uh, this confrontation of Elijah with the prophets of Baal is uh, powerful. I want to challenge us here this morning that the miraculous intervening hand of the Lord should be a reality for every believer and for the church of Jesus Christ. The miraculous intervening hand of the Lord should be a reality for every believer and the church of Jesus Christ. We had to expect God to do supernatural things. And uh, here's a supernatural moment. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. It says, And came to pass after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And that's an interesting phrase, after many days. So what's happening in those times? I don't know. But apparently in those times... Elijah's just doing what he does. He's praying. Now, God, you promised. Now, God, I'm holding you to your word. And the rain is being held back because Elijah is praying. And we're talking years of praying, three and a half years of praying. And I'm sure it was a daily thing. Now, God, you promised. Work in your people. Um, do a work. And so Elijah, who's already made proclamation to the throne, of Ahab, there's going to be no dew nor rain, then he goes uh, and, and hides himself. But then the word of the Lord comes back to him after years and says, I want you now to take us to the next step. Go find Ahab. Okay, so there's a story of Obadiah. It's kind of an interesting story. Obadiah goes and gets Ahab, brings him back. Ahab, of course, accuses Elijah of being the one that's causing trouble. And look at verse 17, it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah. Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Elijah said, I haven't troubled Israel, but thou in thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and hast followed Balaam. And of course, that's true. Elijah's not the troublemaker. Ahab is a troublemaker. Elijah, by his prayer, is a problem solver. And uh, look at verse 31. We have the miracle. We have the fire of God fall. Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm ahead of myself. Uh, we're in the middle of this confrontation. Look at verse number 31. Um, I'm sorry, verse number 36, pardon me. Verse 36, it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, now he's praying publicly, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, that I am thy servant, that I have done all these things, and here's our phrase, at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Um, but I do want to point out just a couple of verses earlier. Look at verse 31. You have now Elijah 
And he takes these stones and he repairs the altar and he's getting ready to show the hand of God. Of course, you have, um, you have um, verse 29. Uh, you have the prophets of Baal crying out for hours and hours. And it says in verse 20, 29, there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. And of course, these are crying out to a God who is no God. And it's hard for no God to say anything. And so they're hearing nothing. And uh, in, the, in the face of them hearing nothing, Elijah gets a hold of God and they see the fire fall. But look at verse 31. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom, look at this phrase, the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. There was a day where that nation knew the word of the Lord. But they walked away from the Lord. And the word of the Lord wasn't freely coming in those days. And uh, so on that day, they're crying out to the wrong God. Of course, they're getting no response. But why they halted between two opinions is because in that day, those people, they couldn't get a word from their false God. But the problem is they were having trouble getting a word from God himself. And so Elijah says, make a choice. And the people don't know what to do because they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to trust upon Yahweh because they knew that was the right thing, but they'd never done it before. And, and he's distant to them. Well, they knew better than to go for Baal. Baal's evil. And they felt guilty about Baal, but they didn't know what to do. Because Baal at least was sort of meeting their needs. And Yahweh was far away. And so what Elijah does in this moment, by the hand of God and the word of the Lord, God does a miraculous moment. And at that point, they recognize the word of the Lord is true. Look at verse 42. Verse 42, it says, Elijah sent to Ahab, um, uh, the fire of the Lord falls, the people recognize it. Verse 41, Elijah says to Ahab, get thee up, eat and drink. There is the sound of abundance of rain. That was prophetic. Uh, Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up into the top of Carmel, cast himself down upon the earth, and put his face between his knees. What was he doing? Putting his face between his knees. He wasn't stretching. Now, that, would be a, that would be a stretch, but what was he doing? He was praying, right? So he went to the, he did what he does. He goes and he prays. He says to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. He went up, looked, and said, there's nothing. He said, go again seven times. came to pass at the seventh time. He said, behold, there riseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, go up, saying to Ahab, prepare thy chariot, get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And, and the answer to his prayer to hold the rain back now was for the rain to come. And uh, Elijah, by his prayer, literally moves heaven and uh, He's an example to us. This is what James says. James says he's just like you and I. And he prayed, and God withheld the rain. He prayed again, and God brought the rain. And James is saying, you do that. Elijah's an example to us. And what God does is he gives the word to Elijah, and Elijah returns that word right back to God. And God responds to the word in miraculous and powerful Ways. I would say what the church of Jesus Christ needs today, really what our world around us needs to see today, is we need to get a word from the Lord. I want you to just sit on that for a minute. We need a word from the Lord. And I say that because I don't want to confuse anybody. We have the word right here. But we need to know the reality of the living word, Jesus Christ, giving us leadership and power and life and blessing based on the word, just like Elijah did. Elijah didn't have some strange power to get God to speak. 
Elijah just knew how to get in the position to hear. And that should be true for all of us. The miraculous working of God is proof of the word of the Lord. It's proof of the word of the Lord. The word and a word always go hand in hand. Okay, that's powerful, chapter 18. I'm going to say one last thing we'll be done. Do you know the attack that followed in chapter 19 is, um, it's hard for us to wrap our brain around, but this is direct satanic opposition. Jezebel, no doubt, was demon-possessed. I, uh, that, that lady, was she was evil uh, personified. And uh, so here you have Ahab come home, tells his wife the story. You know the story. He comes home, and I'm sure he, he's trying to process the whole thing, you know. Um, he just killed all of our prophets, but it's raining. When he was talking to Jezebel at that point, it was raining outside, you know, so something changed. And uh, wow, you know, this is, a, I, think, I think Ahab himself is a little overwhelmed by it, and Jezebel is fit to be tied. Look what happens in chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel, and uh, verse 2, Jezebel sent messengers unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them. By tomorrow, about this time. Wow. And uh, you, you can look at that story and think, well, why didn't he just go and kill her? You know, he just killed 450 men. What is she going to do? He should just go and deal with her. But I'm telling you, at that moment, the devil powerfully it, um, intersected Elijah's life. And it scared him. It scared him silly. He runs away. You know the story. He literally runs away. And he runs, goes to Beersheba, leaves his servant, keeps going. Ends up going all the way down to Horeb. Horeb, that's a long way to run. Of course, Elijah's shown himself to be a good runner. He outran Ahab. Uh, actually, I looked it up last night. This is so corny. I apologize for this. But I think actually running from Carmel down to Samaria is uh, almost a marathon, give or take. So, yeah. so Ahab, well, uh, Elijah was a marathon runner. So <laughs> it's good. It's good. Everybody ought to run a marathon at some point. I haven't yet, but whatever. Okay. Uh, everybody ought to run a marathon at some point. So here he is. Now he's going all the way down to Horeb. Of course, there's a point where an angel uh, feeds him, and he gets strength to go, and he, and he, he makes his way all, down to, all the way down to Horeb. And actually at Horeb, what's another name for Horeb in the scripture? Sinai. So he goes all the way to Mount Sinai. And uh, you remember, of course, the nation had an intersection with God at Sinai. And to hear Ahab, uh, Elijah's back down there at Mount Sinai. And in fact, it's interesting. Um, let see if I can find the verse. Uh, verse 9, uh, it says, He came thither unto a cave in Horeb. Comes to a cave and lodges there. And I have wondered, and I can't prove this, I just wonder if the cave that Elijah went to is the same cliff of the rock that Moses was shielded in. And I have no way to prove that. But let's just all agree that's a good idea. <laughs> so he goes to Sinai, and here he's hiding in this cave. And he is overwhelmed in despair. He knows that he ran when he should have stood. Uh, he feels like he's blown it. And in a certain sense, at that moment, he did blow it. He should have stayed and confronted, but he was scared. I understand how that goes. And uh, so he's, he's feeling it now at this point. <clears throat> same place, same cliff. And it's interesting. Look what happens in verse 9. It says, Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him. That's exactly what he needed. The word of the Lord came unto him and says, What doest thou here, Elijah? Elijah explains the situation. He said, I did what I was supposed to do, but now I've ran away, and, and it'd be better for you just to kill me. Verse 11, And he said, The Lord, Go forth, stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. 
I think just like with Moses. The Lord passed by in a great and a strong wind, rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord is not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord is not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And uh, these, are, these, are, these are powerful moments. You know, you think of here, the, the, there's an earthquake. You know, wow. Uh, what if you're in your dorm room and uh, you're doing your, your Greek and all of a sudden the dorm begins to shake and there's an earthquake and a voice comes from heaven that says, go across the street and witness to your neighbor. What would you do at that point? I'd go across the street and witness to my neighbor, no doubt about it, you know. Are you walking, you know, from your dorm here to the main building and a whirlwind comes and picks you up and whirls you around and, and the Lord says, now you need to go and give a million dollars to the new dorm project. <laughs> Lord, I'm willing. <laughs> give me the million, you know. Uh, what else would you do? You know, what would you do? You would, you would do whatever you said. And I want to challenge you this morning. That is not how God talks. I said in the beginning, God doesn't have to yell. God doesn't yell. In a whirlwind, a fire, an earthquake, some strange, powerful moment. That's just not how God works because God doesn't need to yell. And you know what's happened. You know the very next phrase here. What's the very next phrase? It says, and the uh, Lord is not in the fire, verse 12, and after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entrance of the cave, and God recommissions Elijah, sends him, gives him a task, he obeys. Elijah really, the rest of his life, becomes a, a life of mentorship uh, for many, and uh, his life gets multiplied. But it's the word of the Lord that comes back to him. And I want to challenge you with just one thought this morning, and we're done. That day on Mount Carmel, when the fire fell, and that was, quite a, that was quite a day. The fire of God falls and consumes, and everybody saw it. Let me ask you a question. For whom did the fire fall on that day? For whom did the fire fall? I want to submit to you, it wasn't for Elijah. Elijah didn't need the fire to fall. He had already heard the word of the Lord. He was following Yahweh. He didn't need the fire to fall. The fire fell that day for them, not him. God did a profound, miraculous intersection of the nation because they needed it. They were halted between two, opinions. between two opinions. Elijah wasn't. The fire didn't fall that day for Elijah. He knew the word of the Lord. But the interesting thing about the day that fire fell is I think in a certain sense it distracted Elijah. So Elijah sees the miraculous hand of God come. And I, I believe, BCM students, you're going to see the miraculous hand of God come. Pastor mentioned the trial of this generation is going to be see, to, to see the Lord provide miraculously for the dorm. I agree with him. I think that's exactly right. You're going to see miracles. You're going to see miracles in people's lives. In your own life, you're going to see miracles happen because that's what God does. If you let him, he will. But like in Elijah's life, do you know the miraculous can actually distract you from what the main thing of Christianity is? Do you know the main thing of Christianity is hearing the word of the Lord? And you can get distracted by great things and think it's the great things that make Christianity great. That's not true. What makes Christianity great is hearing God speak. Because here Elijah, he, he saw this incredible thing happen, and then Satan attacks in an incredible way. And he runs, and he's feeling full force the reality of just his ministry and the supernatural opposition. And wow, I'm not up to this task. And God challenges him. It's not the earthquake. It's not the whirlwind. It's not the fire. 
listen. And he listens. And God talks to him. What did Elijah need to be reminded of that day? Not how to get more fire to fall, but how to hear the word of the Lord. And God speaks in a still, small voice. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, God does not shout. Don't get distracted by the wondrous hand of God. He will do miracles. I promise you, he will. If you let him, he will. He'll do miracles. And those miracles are great, great days. But you know what matters to a real Christian is what happens every morning when you get up and you open your Christ Walk journal and you begin to praise God and then you yield to God and you let him deal with your sin and then you deal with spiritual warfare and you stand on the promises of God and you begin to, and then you listen. The real thing of Christian life isn't that God's going to do miracles through you, and he will. You're going to see miracles. I've seen miracles. You're going to see miracles. But you know the real thing of Christian life is that he talks to you. In learning to get a word as you're in the word, learning to get a word and say, okay, God, I'm going to obey you today. What do you want me to do? God, you tell me. I'm listening. What do you want me to do? Let's all learn to listen to the still, small voice of God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't get distracted.